Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Okay, all flight controllers. Don't go for landing. Retro. Go. I don't go. Nice. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Uh, let her rip, uh, spider. Oh, God, look at that picture over there. Hey, uh, we've had a problem here. SCE to Ox, Capcom. I was trolling on the moon one day. 12, 1202 alarm. This is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Contact light. Welcome to the July 2019 edition of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. Once again, we're in the library at the British Interplanetary Society in London, for part two of our Apollo 11 celebration. We'll be talking to the only woman in Apollo launch control, discussing the new Armstrong film and hearing about the Brits of Apollo. We're joined by former NASA engineer and editor of Space Flight magazine for the British Interplanetary Society, David Baker, who worked for NASA on the Apollo programme. I think you've possibly written more words on the space programme, given that we're surrounded by books here, than any other author, including several on Apollo, including several Haynes manuals on on Apollo. Uh, Are you surprised at how much attention this 50th anniversary is getting? It's been a real surprise, a real surprise to me, because I think um, over the years there have been a number of celebratory anniversaries for various space achievements, uh, both while the the tremendous record of firsts has been built up and then for those standard anniversary periods that we're all used to. But this one has been really, really phenomenal and is, is very strong here in the UK and in many countries that had a contribution to the programme. And it seems to be, it's not just a nostalgia thing this time. There seems to be more to it than that. There seems to almost be inspiring people again. I think for a while, Apollo, because it was so immersed in the Cold War and because it crashed right into the period of environmental awareness coming up in the 1970s, there was almost an anti-technology feeling that parked it on one side as being, well, it was a very American thing, it was a very ideological race with another state. And over the decades, um, space has become universally accepted as a beneficial activity, a motivational force for science and engineering, and something that, that can be seen to do measurable good to most people on Earth. So, baselined, I think space is more of an acceptable subject to discuss. And from that has come, well, hang on, let's see, this was the beginning, and this was an achievement that has not been repeated in 50 years. Well, let's go back in time then to the 16th of July, 1969. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 2 hours, 40 minutes, 40 seconds, and counting. At this time... There's a famous picture of Apollo 11 launch control at Cape Canaveral where you see everyone looking towards the window and the launch of the Saturn V rocket. We have main engine start, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, 
In a room full of men, there's one woman. Instrumentation controller Joanne Morgan. An engineer, she was responsible for 21 channels of communications and the health and welfare of all the monitoring systems for the Saturn V rocket. Well, when I was in Florida recently, I met up with Joanne and we discussed the day of launch and also the sexism she had to deal with. For Apollo 11, I was the only woman at a console. Occasionally, women would come into the room to deliver procedures, or they might be a secretary bringing a special message to someone, or they might be picking up a document, or bringing a change in uh, that people needed to insert in their procedures that we were, we were all scripted, you know, so we were following a procedure for our launch countdown, which our countdown was four days long, by the way. It's quite an extensive thing to prepare to go to the moon. (laughs) So um, we had women in and out, but they were just, you know, no more than a half a dozen. But I was the only one assigned to work there with a console. And I'd worked on all of the, from starting with Apollo 1, I had worked on those, on the console as instrumentation controller, starting as a junior and then moving up to be a senior. And Apollo 11 was the first launch that I actually got to sit there during the liftoff. The hard part for us on the ground was propellant loading, getting everything ready and loading those super cold propellants and getting them stabilized and the the pad purged and clear so we could uh, have no fire hazards and getting it ready for the astronauts to be inserted into the command module. So we, uh, you know, we, we, I was always the one that worked propellant loading and would fall back about two or three hours before launch for the other launches before Apollo 11. But my boss told me and my director at the time told me, oh, we want you in there for Apollo 11. You're our best communicator, so we want you sitting there and doing it. You take it for granted now. I think the launch controller has about 50-50 men women. How different was it then, and what was it like then being the, the only woman, and very noticeably the only woman in the pictures? Usually I was so busy, it, I didn't notice it. <laughs> to, to tell you the truth, it was something that in the beginning uh, there was a, a little resistance but by the time Apollo 11 rolled around, people were pretty used to me being there. I mean, there, there's that lady down in that row, and occasionally somebody would say, oh, what does she do? And artists would come, and they would say, oh, and they'd paint me in a yellow dress, even though I didn't have on a yellow dress because they thought they were, I was a curiosity, and they wanted it to pop out in their, their paintings or their drawings of the firing room and launch control. But um, I think there were a few men who didn't like it, You know, people who come from the military maybe worked on submarines or ships where they never had any dealings with women. So part of it was learning to trust me that I actually was there to work and I knew what I was doing. And what about, I mean, in the film Hidden Figures, the the women have to go to a separate building to go to the bathroom. Did you have similar, you know, bathroom experiences or, you know, the whole place being geared up for men? Early on in in my work, I did, because Blockhouse 26, uh, Complex 34, where we had Apollo, early Apollo 1 mission, and Blockhouse 37, we didn't have ladies' room in those blockhouses. Blockhouse 26, where we launched the Redstone, there were, I mean, I'd have to go miles away to find a ladies' room, so, and, and 34, same thing, you had to hike over to a building nearby, but... 
We had a great security guard there. He would clear the men's room occasionally and come tell me. He would police it up, and then I could take a break. But they would never lock me up in there, you know. They have to lock the doors for security as a bunker, you know, to protect you from explosion. Nobody would ever authorize locking me in there with all the men, so and no ladies' restrooms. But, yeah, and even when they built new buildings, they seemed to not get it right and forget there were going to be more and more women as workers. And so the first building I worked in in the industrial area, they only had one ladies' room in the whole building, a three-story building, mind you, and then hired a lot of key-punch operators and computer operators who were women, and, and they had to con- there were three men's room on every floor. They had to convert a men's room on each floor to a ladies' room. So we had ladies' rooms with urinals. <laughs> Did you face any outright sexism, abuse, the sort of behavior that we would just find unacceptable today? A little bit. I got obscene phone calls, some comments, some odd things said in the elevator in the stairwell, and some pushing in the cafeteria when I was a college student and working in the summers. I mean, literally, men would come up and just squash around you. I'd be the only woman standing in the line in the military cafeteria at Cape Canaveral. And uh, I just quit going there. I'd just bring my lunch. So, you know, there's behaviors that would be totally frowned on and unacceptable today. And luckily for me, I was smart enough that I, I told somebody. After I was married, I told my husband, and he would say, this this comment or this behavior, you should go tell a supervisor. Don't, you know, this one, ignore it. It's just nothing. It's a, And I got to where, after a while, most of it quit because people realized I was a serious worker. Did you feel you had to work harder than the men to be accepted at doing your job? I didn't think about it that way. I just had a true passion for this business. I wanted to be an engineer in the space program from the time I was a high school student. And it never occurred to me that I shouldn't be there because I knew how much I cared. And I I just, I wanted to be there. I wanted to work. That was what was important to me. And that other people had little issues of dealing with it was their problem, not mine. What is the pressure and what is the the tension, the atmosphere like with the the launch of Apollo 11? The atmosphere, (laughs) the outside atmosphere was amazing. So many people came. You know, literally the whole country was here watching. And so right away for those of us who were coming to work, we, you know, we, we came to work hours and hours early just simply because the traffic and the mass of people who are coming into the coast in order to see Apollo 11. And and so that electricity of just the volume of people in our region, uh, all the motels and restaurants were packed with people. You, you can't work in a place like Kennedy Space Center on a mission like that. And then you drive through car- all these masses of cars, and then on the news they show everything from Daytona to... Miami, all up and down the coast, people are interested. So the intensity of the environment hits you right away. For me, coming out to the launch pad at night for propellant load, I didn't come until the very end of propellant load. So I saw driving into my parking area the the venting of the liquid oxygen. And it's still dark. And seeing the 
The vehicles all bathed in beautiful xenon lights, all lit up. Just absolutely majestic sight. It always thrilled me to see that. I, I stood out in the parking lot and watched it for a while. Just just watched it because it was just so beautiful and to think it was all made by humans. So, I mean, and that humans were going to sit on it and then they were going to go to the moon. The uh, environment at launch control was very, uh, I'd say, maybe a little more subdued than normal. But this was my first launch to sit there that last two hours and get locked in. And so for me, I knew that, I mean, we had a launch control discipline. You're supposed to sit at your seat and not jump up and down and run around and, you know, not a lot of chitty chat. Uh, they did, people were allowed to smoke then. Luckily, nobody smoked next to me because I was a non-smoker. But while they announced a while before liftoff, the you know, dispose of your cigarettes, and then they lock the door, so you're you're locked in for the duration. And uh, luckily for me, all my systems were working great. I mean, I didn't have anything negative to report. I was go for launch. And uh, uh, once we cleared the pad and the astronauts came out, it was, uh, you know, it was just a very subdued but that kind of inner intensity and uh, the knowing that, you know, and praying we're not going to get a locked revert or something stop us at the at the end and and keep us from going. So it was a great day, and it is the slowest thing to lift off of all the missions I ever worked. Apollo Eleven was the slowest to get on up. It was like you're holding your breath for you know thirty seconds almost because you're it's just. Is it going to clear the tower? I had to watch that part on on TV. I, I couldn't stand up and turn around and look because I had to monitor 21 channels, and there were, if something was wrong, somebody was going to tell me, and I had to be paying attention to that. And just the, the shock wave could blow antennas or boxes or instrumentation off of there. So... And it always did. And we knew some of that would happen from our prior Apollo launches. We knew that there would be damages on the on the pad. So I had to log those because we had another launch coming up after this. So we had to know when that happened. By the way, a lot of this, uh, it, you had to handwrite in a logbook. We didn't have computers or anything, any speedy way to, to document things when we got reports coming in the last minute, in, in this case for me, like at liftoff with any damage reports. So I couldn't stand up, but when I finally could turn my chair around and look, everybody else is standing up looking out the window at the launch, and I'm the only one sitting down. <laughs> it was kind of a laugh. Then later on, there's a wonderful photo, which I thought had been taken the first 10 minutes after launch. Turns out it was 40 minutes after launch or 45 minutes. And I'm still looking at all the men in the photo that are standing up looking out the window. However, later on I found out, oh, they're not looking out the window. They're looking at, at Nixon. Or Yeah, Nixon is making a speech to the launch team and congratulating them. So, <laughs> But I, I went for a long time thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm the only one sitting here. But I had my headset mouthpiece to my mouth because I had to talk to somebody too. They called in and I had to answer them. So anyway, that that was kind of my little personal experience at that console.
NASA engineer Joanne Morgan. I mean, David, this it's changed immeasurably, hasn't it? Since then, the, the space program. When I was in Mission Control recently. I think you could look. For, I think you could probably count the people in the room. It's about fifty-fifty, male and female, and it wasn't just these twenty-something white men. Yes, it has changed enormously, and I think that uh, we're, we're now very familiar with the prejudice that existed in the 1960s, which on reflection, um, and even at the time, seemed anachronistic and completely wrong, both within the societal structure of, of the general c- communities, as well as the lack of motivational foresight in career guidance given to young women as well. It wasn't just in the attitude of the men with regard to why are they here or or why should they be here. Now we've reversed that to, a well, why should they not be here? And at the time as well, and this prevails today in too many educational establishments, and I've encountered it myself, where careers officers tell young girls, oh, no, you don't go into that, you know, you... You won't make a good career of it. That's a man's job. This is still prevailing today, but it's heartening to see that there is a pressure, and and, and I think that there has to be positive pressure. I'm a great believer in this because I think we've gone far too long and far too wide on accepting, well, this is the way it is. Well, no, this is not the way it actually is because we're going to change it, and I think that is vitally important. There is also, though, the um, optics, as is often the the phrase used now. And I thought that SpaceX got the optics wrong with some of their first wonderful Falcon boosters landing because although they had one of their female engineers presenting it and she was magnificent and her name has just completely gone off at the top of my head who she was, but she was absolutely brilliant. It was whenever you saw the great control room shots of everybody celebrating it could have been like Apollo because they were all men yes that's very true and I think uh, in a place this 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 is the problem with these private commercial organizations who essentially are locked down closed up and you don't really see exactly what's going on in a lot of these places there's great concern I know um, to put to put a broader interpretation on this that when you have a government-run operation, you can instill certain protocols and procedures. You can mandate a certain set of objectives, both in the employment base, in the gender variability that you have. But when you are having these contractors, they are laws purely to themselves. And I think it broadens out more widely as well in the fact that we're seeing a great turn through with these companies that you're not seeing with the government space agencies, where the employees are looked after to a much greater extent and where there is a societal pressure to legislate for there to be common standards on both gender, both men and women. So that's a concern I have because in companies we can name, SpaceX, it's, it's very well out in, in the public domain, that they hire and fire at, at, at a whim and on a will. And that's not really the way to build a committed employee base. Well, last time on Space Boffins, we discussed the new Apollo 11 movie. But you might also have seen, almost certainly, well, if you follow Space Boffins on uh, Facebook, Twitter or whatever, you'll have seen social media promotions and even posters, old school posters, for another movie, Armstrong. Neil didn't like the exposure that he saw coming. They became immediate, more than rock stars even. They were world heroes. You're my people. And I'm proud to be one of you. Neil Armstrong reported back. Good luck and Godspeed. 
did not know what was happening. That was potentially the end. We do have the spacecraft under control at the present time. Apollo 11, this is Houston. We'll see you on the other side, over. Copy it down, Eagle. We actually did it. He's the best person of all of us to have been the first man on the moon. This is the beginning of a new era when man understands himself. Well, that's a clip from the trailer. I saw it a a few days ago, as you can gather. It's the story of Neil Armstrong from those who knew him. And what the filmmakers have got hold of are home movies, uh, they've talked to family, friends, his his ex-wife, and uh, Harrison Does she Ford... say something positive about him? That's well, normally it's a bit really, dodgy here. Well, you're, you're here in the interview. Um, it's, it's very interesting. And then um, they've got Harrison Ford, but he's not narrating the documentary. He's just voicing up the, the personal letters and personal uh, speeches and things that Neil Armstrong wrote himself. So you're kind of hearing the voice of of Neil Armstrong in it. Well, I've been chatting to the director of the film, David Fairhead. Neil described himself as an aviator, not an astronaut. Being an astronaut was just part of being an aviator. And it did define his his whole life, as far as I can tell. The only reason he learnt to fly was so he could understand aircraft better, because he wanted to be an aircraft designer. That That was the job he wanted to do. But of course, he went off down the path of learning to fly, and then you know, and then gets drafted into the Navy. Well, he didn't get drafted into the Navy. He joined the Navy uh, as as a way of going to college, and then the Korean War came along. So then he's drafted into the Navy, into into you know combat service, um, and then he just reveals a side of him that he probably didn't even know he had, which was this incredible ability to remain calm under pressure. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing that set him up for the rest of his career, it was that. In all aspects, actually, not just space flight, but also how he handled the press and everything else uh, later on in his life. So, uh, you know, everyone describes him as being quiet, introspective, thoughtful. Um, but uh, calm under pressure, I think, is probably his greatest attribute. I mean, we should put this this tag to rest, I think, and I think your, the film does, this this idea that he got, this label he got, I think particularly from the around the 80s onwards of, the, of being a recluse. Neil was, for quite a long period of time, probably the most famous man on the planet. Um, he was absolutely inundated with requests. I mean, in the, in the film, there's a little sequence where we, the camera does a track over these letters on, on, his, on his desk. Now, those are letters that we got from Purdue University. Um, uh, and I can tell you that was you know, that was about half a dozen there. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters that he got probably every week. Um, he got requests for interviews. He could not literally do it all. And, um, and so... Not surprisingly, he eventually wanted to take a step back from it. And the moment you step back from from the, the public eye, if you like, you're labelled recluse. And it just seems rather unfair. Just because he didn't speak to the press anymore didn't make him a recluse. He still lived a bull, a, a, a full and busy life. Um, and he had friends around him and he travelled a lot and he gave talks and speeches. He was a man in great demand and he just didn't 
have enough time in the day to speak to everyone. And so he spoke to people he wanted to speak to, not just because he should feel obliged to speak to newspapers. And in fact, Mark says in, in the film, and there's a nice wobble in his voice when he says it, is about, my dad was not a recluse. <laughs> how much did you... Do you now know, how much do we now know of how much the family knew of the danger he was putting himself in every day? I'm not just thinking of, of putting himself in a, a rocket. I mean, the Gemini spinning around out of control. You've got, obviously, the Apollo 11 moon mission. Then before that, the X-15 and going up out of, out of the atmosphere and not being able to kind of get back down again. I mean, these it's incredibly, you know, it's not a go-to-the-office nine-to-five. Aviation in those days, and still to an extent, today, I mean, test-flying aviation was extremely dangerous. Um, in the film, there's a sequence where we talk about it when he first went to Edwards Air Force Base, and there's a sequence where you see an F-100 crash. Um, and Frank Borman talks about the fact that they just had to get used to that kind of thing and, and get on with it. When Borman was training in the Navy, they lost 22 pilots over a weekend just in training. That was the cost. And, 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 and you would just shrug and say, well, they'd have never have made it in combat anyway. Um, you, know, you have to remember as well. This is just you know whatever it was, you know, ten eight years after after the end of the uh, the Second World War, so people were kind of used to loss. Uh, it doesn't make it right uh, that uh, you know that you know, I know we've gone too far the other way now on health and safety, perhaps, but um, perhaps a little bit more health and safety then would have been it would have been a good thing. But it was really that whole thing of pioneering, especially jet fighters, and then and then rocket planes as well that meant that, uh, that there was always a, a real challenge for both engineers and pilots to, to build those planes to be safe and to fly them um, and to, or to make them flyable. And for the pilots, of course, that was often a really difficult challenge. Um, so, no, it wasn't an ordinary day in the office. But then the other side of that as well is how did their families cope? And you only have to listen to Janet speaking that you realise that... Um, well, they just don't make them like that anymore. She is cut, you know, she's carved out of solid granite, that woman. And I don't mean that she's cold. What I mean is she is tough and resilient. And she accepted that, you know, she might not see her, her husband that night after he'd left for work in the, in the morning. It was, but that's just the way it was. You've mentioned some of the people in the cast. I mean, Frank Borman, commander of Apollo 8. Um, you've got the whole, the whole family you've got friends and i think they really it's great to hear people who who are kind of his equal in in a way it's kind of it's nice to have that you've got mike collins from uh, apollo 11 as well um the standout interview for me is chris craft in the head of of mission control uh, i mean it's it's incredible he's still around it's incredible he's still lucid and very opinionated yeah he's he's <laughs> he's not short of an opinion is uh, is dr craft um, yeah, he um, he just uh, we contacted him uh, and just said we're making a film about Neil. Uh, would you like to be involved? And we'd worked with him on Mission Control, so he'd been very pleased with that film. Uh, and he just said yes. Uh, there was no hesitation, and uh, and so we turned up to interview him again. Big cheery smile and wave from him, uh, which which is lovely because um, I'm sure he's been interviewed so many times and must you know all the camera crews and everyone must blend into one. But no, he absolutely, you know, was very, very keen to help. And um, it wasn't going to be as detailed an interview as with Mission Control, and it was very much specifically about about Neil. 
But, you know, a bit a bit of what didn't make it into the final cut, but which was fascinating, is that um, uh, Chris Craft worked at the NACA, which is the predecessor to NASA. And uh, although he didn't work um, at the same place that Neil worked, because Neil also worked at the NACA, he knew him. And then when they were start, starting to look for the second group of astronauts, um, unlike, I think, everyone else, Neil was actually invited to join. He didn't apply. And um, uh, and sure enough, he, he got in because, as, as Mike says in the film, he was probably the best qualified of all of them. Um, uh, and, and so that's how the interview was framed around how... You know, Chris Craft knew Neil. And it was, uh, you know, as ever, he's incredibly insightful, incredibly opinionated. And that really came to the fore when we started, started talking about the selection, how, you know, that, that, that after Neil was selected, there were certain, uh, for, to command Apollo 11, uh, there were certain protocols they needed to work out. And one of, one of them was who's going to be first to step onto the moon. And uh, Chris did not hold back in his opinion as to why it should be Neil and not Buzz. Um, and it's, uh, it, I mean, <laughs> it's honestly, it's worth watching the film for that, <laughs> that bit alone. <laughs> well, I think all of our jaws must have dropped in the uh, uh, when we were doing the interview. When he said, "I did it." Um, it was uh, no, he's uh, he's a joy to a filmmaker because um, to, to have someone who doesn't equivocate and just says it as they see it, wow, you, you can't pay for that stuff. Uh, finally, did you revise your opinion of him as you went along? So you start this project, you, you work with the family, you start to, to get an insight into him. Did, did you change your, your opinion of him or, or you know how the popular narrative is versus the actual Neil Armstrong? Well, like Neil himself, you know, th- th- there's a challenge to making a film about a guy who's quiet and intra- introspective. And <laughs> doesn't sort of blow his own trumpet. You know, he always talked about the 400,000 people that were behind Apollo, whereas some of the other, as we know, some of the other Apollo astronauts are only too keen on talking about themselves and their own achievements. Yeah, you have to get other people to talk about Neil. <laughs> I mean, even the fact that he's, you know, he's passed is, is uh, you know, if he'd still been around, I'm sure his interview wouldn't have been about me, me, me. It would have been about everyone else. Um, so uh, you know, there, was def- there was definitely a challenge in, in telling that story. But I think there were a number of things for me that, that came out in, in the film. I, I, I really came to appreciate the fact just how his humility and how humble he was and how much he, he felt like he, um, he shouldn't take the limelight. That was that was one thing, and uh, but I was also I loved again that seeing that uh, those home movies. I just loved seeing how how happy he seemed to be, you know, especially in those early days and around Edwards and everything. It just seemed to be such a lovely life, and I bet it was tough as hell living in the desert with the blowing wind and the you know the. Uh, the blazing sun, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and cars that never worked. That's another thing, apparently, about Neil. Um, he never had a, a decent car. <laughs> I'm sure he did later on, but at the time he didn't. But I, I think the, the single thing that I found most surprising about Neil, we we had this narrative device in the film that was the idea of um, one of the producers, uh, Keith Haviland, and that was to take interviews and writings uh, that Neil had had done that he'd given things that he'd written, speeches, all that kind of stuff. So from all different sources. And we went through all that and we pieced together from all those writings and all those words, really, 
this kind of narrative spine that was then, you know, we were incredibly fortunate to get uh, track Harrison forward to the project, and he read it so well. But the one piece that really uh, stood out for me was a, a piece Gareth and I went to um, Purdue University to look through boxes and boxes of the Armstrong archives, and believe me, when he scratched the surface. Um, but there were all these speeches that he'd written, and, he, and this was a speech, and I think it was 1970, to the University of Cincinnati, and it was talking about his observations about being on the lunar surface. He talked about seeing the Earth from the lunar surface. And bearing in mind this was 50 years ago, he talked about how fragile it looked, but also how vulnerable it is. And it's not vulnerable from alien attack or an asteroid hit. It's vulnerable from its own population and that we really ought to look after it better. And it really struck me that here is Neil, the uh, prototype environmentalist, more qualified to speak about it than anyone else because he has seen it from the surface of the moon. And I was just, first of all, amazed that he'd, he'd said that and then really angry that no one has done anything about it 50 years and we're still talking still arguing about it today and all the time all the while you know the planet will survive us it's really it's mankind we've got to worry about And and i think neil was aware of that and so for me that was the that was the revelation uh about about neil that he had this uh side of him that was beyond engineering beyond being a pilot it was uh he could make these incredibly uh, acute observations about what was around him and and about stuff that mattered so that was that was the neil that i came to really enjoy getting to know david fairhead director of armstrong and uh, i should say thanks very much to molinaire in london for hosting us for that interview we actually got to sit in a very plush dubbing theater which is where they do the uh, the sound the sound mix for the film. So they plush sofas and then a big mixing desk at the back. I, I could have hung out there all day. It was great. Well, I, I didn't mention um, in our last podcast that when I interviewed the director and the arch- archivist for Apollo 11, that it was in a hotel, in a suite. And I felt a bit like Hugh Grant in Notting Hill. And there were lots of... PAs with with clipboards and sort of jelly beans on tables and all sort of several people think I don't know what they do. And because I felt like Hugh Grant, I went in to see them. And the first thing I said was, oh, hello, Sue Nelson, horse and hound. And they just looked at me and it's just like, oh, I thought you were from Space Poppins. And I, nobody got it. Nobody got it. So that's, I mean, because I, I had to think about it. It's a reference to Notting Hill, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. a famous bit where Hugh yeah. Grant has to make something up and go, you know, whatever his character's name is, Horse and Cat. Well, I'm glad you got it. You were giggling away, but very quietly. So people are just thinking you blanked me as much as they did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, so let me just give a, a very quick, my my quick thoughts. Because I've not on, seen, um, I've no, not seen I, this yet. I mean, I thought it was excellent, really excellent. It's at high production values. It's the same team that produced Last Man, uh, the film about Gene Cernan and the Mission Control movie. It's gripping. It's cinematic. I think that's the thing about it. It's a documentary, but it's cinematic, even though they've got these home movies, which are because of the, the, the way that sort of Super 8 film is, it's kind of super saturated colour. It's got that certain look about it and fantastic access. So you hear Neil Armstrong's sons, his daughter, you hear 
his uh, ex-wife. Gr- who granite. Took, yes, yeah. <laughs> you, you heard there. And I think in terms of an understanding of Neil Armstrong, way better understanding of Neil Armstrong than the film First Man. And, you know, they were saying well, they didn't really recognise that That's right. A lot of people said about First Man that Neil Armstrong was had much more of a sense of humour than one was portrayed in the film. Have you seen that film, David? No, I haven't seen that film, but I certainly think that uh, on the whole basis of uh, what is now emerging with these cinematic productions, as as, as you mentioned them, Richard, um, I think it's important to get this message across because for a certain amount of time, for several decades in actual fact, Neil Armstrong really didn't get the best press in terms of how he approached publicity and many were unable to accept that this was not an insularity on his part. He was a very giving and outgoing person, but he was a a, a consummate team player. He never could. He became almost, well, certainly cerebrally, but almost physically incapable of accepting the accolades that were heaped upon him. He always felt it was a massive team effort. He was one of the loveliest people, and I think it is for that reason that he was very specifically chosen, despite the excuses made, to be the first man to walk on the lunar surface. An admirable choice. Have you met him? Yes. Oh, so this is from personal. So you thought he was a really nice guy? Yes, I I think he exuded humility. You took it on board and questioned some of your own... You know, when you're working on these programmes, there's a tremendous sense of hubris. Ego, when you're young particularly, it's all there. It's it's something you you come to be embarrassed by as you get older. But um, he made you feel incredibly grown up and incredibly grounded and nuanced to all of the internalised concerns and pressures that he was under for it. And he could only work in that environment by putting a certain shell around him. And that shell just got claustrophobically thicker, self-imposed, because he did not want all this personal adoration, and yet he had to cope with it. And so I'm, I'm really heartened that we're getting this now much more nuanced and mature approach. So, I mean, I would say it is the perfect companion piece to Apollo 11, which you must see. Everyone must we see. We love that. Must yeah, see that. I thought this was fantastic. And um, we've also seen recently the Smithsonian's um, Moonshot. Moonshot. Yeah. yeah. We saw a feature film length version of it when Wally Funk was here in the UK because Wally was doing a, a, a short introduction to it. It was at the Science Museum. It was great fun. It had a, a live soundtrack. Uh, played there by Teeth of the Sea. Uh, The only issue with that was it was taken from a series, so for the Smithsonian Channel, and made into a feature film. So obviously that, what we were seeing, we weren't the intended audience, it wasn't on the intended format because you would be seeing it on your small screen in your in your living room and I think that would be the only thing that I think it suffered from is that it felt like a tv movie on a large screen it didn't you mentioned cinematic it didn't have the same feel of the big screen about it so I suspect if we saw it in its format as a series it would be better but it's definitely made for tv rather than a film 
I think that whole point about TV versus film is really quite interesting because I know at the time this was in the era when there was a great development with regard to film and the use of 70mm film. William Wyler was one of the first to do that with Ben-Hur. Yet the film that was shot in 70mm, ultra-widescreen as we would call it today, um, could not be broadcast on the televisions of the day simply because there were little 4 by 3 boxes and so it couldn't be shown. And so a, a huge amount of this stuff that's gone into the well, Apollo... Well, that's why Apollo yes, 11 is yes. so brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, a 70 yeah. millimeter film. Absolutely. I mean, something I will mention because I've been somewhat immersed. Um, we'll we'll, just, we'll mention in a second we, yeah. in the audio of of missions and audio from the missions from really the beginning of of space until the present day, and the worst period both for video and for uh, audio is the 80s and 90s, where everything was done on video, so the picture quality is awful. And the tapes, a lot of the tapes are missing and no one's properly archived the audio. So Apollo, we've got this amazing audio. We've got all the individual, if you, you know, you have to wade through it. Nothing's labelled and the, the labels bear no relation to the PDF that's meant to come with them. But if you wade through it, you can find the flight director loops. You can find all the, all the bits and pieces from, you know, every mission. So I've been listening to the flight director loops of Apollo 12 when it's struck by lightning. It's just fantastic. You can hear all this stuff. Nothing like that in the 80s and 90s. It's kind of black hole of archive of that, of that period. There's a renaissance now, isn't there, in this? And I think uh, it's really quite heartening because I certainly felt as though it was dying on the vine, this, this opportunity to really bring modern technology into the, uh, into the representation of this. Well, let's uh, throw in another to the mix now with excellent audio quality, a major 10-part audio documentary drama series that we've been working on, Boffer Media, with our partners, B7 Media. It's narrated, I'm very excited by this, by Kate Mulgrew, Captain Kate Janeway from Star Trek, featuring original music as well. It's going to be published on Audible, which you can subscribe to, but if you're already subscribed to it, you will get this 10-part series free, and it's brilliant. I mean, I know we partly made it, but it is bloody brilliant. It's called The Space Race. It's more than brilliant. It's epic, and this is the opening of Episode 6. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. It takes 400,000 people to land on the moon. Engineers, scientists, technicians, mission controllers, trainers, mathematicians, secretaries, doctors, nurses, caterers, contractors, subcontractors, Supply chains across the United States. 45 will make it back alive. 
The Space Race. Episode 6, For All Mankind. That's from The Space Race, our 10-part documentary, which is going to be released on the 12th of July on Audible. Uh, it covers everything from the V2 to our return to the moon and interstellar travel. And what we're pleased about as well, it's got a good amount of Russian uh, material and a good amount of Soviet material. We're trying to balance it as much it's as possible. pretty well across the world for this yes, uh, series. I was in New Mexico and Washington and you were in Moscow. We've been in Europe and in Germany and everywhere. So it really does. Each episode is around an hour each as well. So you will get very, hopefully, comprehensive. And even if you're a big fan of space, I reckon there is stuff in each episode that will make you go, oh, I never knew that because that's how we certainly felt while making it. So enjoy. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist. You can reach us on almost all social media channels. Do tell people about us as well. Uh, we do this because we love it. But we also love hearing from you as well. So let us know what you think. We're at the British Interplanetary Society in London. And our guest is former NASA engineer and prolific space author David Baker. Now, Apollo 11 is often portrayed as this all-American success story, but it owes at least part of that success to dozens of British engineers. Now, when I interviewed the former head of the Johnson Space Centre, George Abbey, who's something of a legend in NASA, uh, I interviewed him recently. He was very keen, and he actually said, I want this on the record. He was very keen that the contribution of British engineers is recognised. Well, I think we're very fortunate that we uh, got some very experienced British engineers involved in the program. They had come over after World War II uh, to work in Avro, Canada, and produced a fighter that uh, was way ahead of its time, and there really hadn't been equal, uh, the Avro Arrow. And then when uh, the Prime Minister of Canada decided to, overnight to cancel it, they were laid off. And uh, at that same time, of course, we had been starting the Mercury program, and Bob Gilruth was... Uh, director of the Mercury program, and he had worked with the Avro engineers at Langley Field in Virginia because we had the wind tunnels there. And uh, he got to know a number of those engineers, so when he found out they'd been laid off and were available, he got in one of the NASA airplanes and headed uh, to Toronto and uh, got a number of the uh, engineers together in a cafeteria and interviewed them, hired them in NASA, and they became NASA engineers. Uh, they came down to the United States and made major contributions to the program, and they were put in major roles of responsibility in Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Do you think they were they've been forgotten or, or assumed that they were Americans rather than they had a background in Britain? I mean, obviously they became American. No, they all uh, they all uh, retained their accents, and uh, <laughs> they uh, all had close ties in uh, UK and 
family in the UK, so they uh, maintained that relationship even though they were here in Texas. And uh, there are uh, unfortunately only a few of them left alive, but uh, they really should get the recognition they really deserve. George Abbey, a legend of the American space program, or one of the many Brits who worked on Apollo, although not via the Avro route, was rocket engineer John Tribe. On the Apollo program, uh, I actually worked with Gunter Vent, who was the uh, you know the pad leader that, that closed out the hatches on every Apollo flight, Mercury flight, Gemini flight. And he and I, and he finished up working for me later in, in life until he retired. But he and I, we would just kid each other over the years, you know, about the war. And he he'd been shot down three different times, and he said, "You never got me," you know. And I said, "Yeah, but I still will," you know. <laughs> and, and we had a good relationship. But there was one time when we were. We were running a test on Apollo, and I had uh, Jose Valin, who was a Mexican electrical engineer, working with me, and myself. Gunter was the pad leader out at the pad, and there was one American technician. And finally, the technician said, doesn't anybody speak American on this program? (laughs) Because we all had our accents, you know. Was there um, a sort of uh, a sense of excitement and achievement at the time that you were doing something? Yes, special. yeah, I, I, you know, that's that's what made the job so neat. You know, you, 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 everything we did was headlines. You know, everything we achieved, anyway. Uh, uh, we made a few headlines. We just as soon not have made. You know, where things didn't go go well, but, but yeah, we knew we were we were on the tip of the spear, and and we knew we were catching the Russians up. Uh, that you know that it was exciting work, and, and we, we were essentially married to our jobs. You know, Apollo especially. We worked horrendous hours. Our, neglected our families. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a tough time, but it was really, you know, our jobs were just everything to us at that time. John Tribe. Well, David, you also worked at NASA um, through, I mean, all the major programs, through the 60s, into the Space Shuttle, into the beginning of the um, the ISS, I think, uh, as well, and Space Station Freedom before that. I mean, a considerable number of, of Brits there. Yes, there really were, both in the contractor cohorts as well as within NASA itself. And um, I think that it is uh, it is really um, part of the story of Apollo that maybe doesn't get as much uh, recognition, um, not from my own personal perspective, but we had some very, very important people who were doing some incredible jobs. And some of the missions were actually saved specifically on the work that was done by a British engineer, maybe working with a contractor or working as a NASA engineer. And, and there were a number of, of instances, not only in the general human spaceflight program, but in Apollo, where landings were saved, literally, by a Brit. I mean, you mentioned the contractors there, and this is something, coming back to what Neil Armstrong was talking about, he always used this figure in, in interviews it with 400,000 people put, put us on the, on the moon. And it, it's easy, and it happens today still, that... Yeah, NASA is the agency, but actually there are an awful lot of contractors and people across the nation and across the world, as we now know, working on these programs. Yes, I think that has always been the case at NASA. I noticed this very much right from the beginning in the mid-1960s, that there was an emphasis on NASA that was quite unique in America because most of the contractors and most of the companies that had the work that was building the hardware um, and remember that 80% of NASA's budget went out to industry and out to academia and to various institutions. But the overall sense of feeling was made in the USA by the contractors. But at NASA, there was always this sense of the international element. And 
right at the end of my deep involvement with NASA, when I was working very closely with Jim Beggs at NASA headquarters, um, he was very tuned in to the international element and was very proud that the NASA workforce was an eclectic mix and always had been. And it is only really within the last decade or two that industry in America has come to realise that they can actually achieve more by engaging in international uh, activities and work and sharing contracts. And now, simply because of the sheer pressure on on the NASA budget to remain static and at, the, and at, and at a sustainable level... Um, contractors actually are having to go international in order to split the work, in order to get the job done. With the return to the moon and the eventual aims of putting on a, a, a moon base or starting some sort of moon base and Trump with his America First agenda, do you feel that NASA is losing some of that international capability or is that more from the presidential rhetoric and that NASA actually remains as international as it always has been or has been the last decade or so? Well, I certainly think there's too much rhetoric, certainly from the White House in regard to space. Um, I have no <clears throat> specific comment about the president himself, but I know certainly... Well, I have plenty, but we just can't, <laughs> can't mention them on this podcast yet. Um, the one thing I would praise Trump for to the heights is that he has... he had, And, and this, again, um, is not a reflection of, of uh, him for his politics or the way he's handling any sort of affairs, but at least he has not meddled to have to reinvent the wheel again. We've, we've gone through the last two or three presidential cycles we've been through. There have been seismic changes to what NASA has been forced to aim for and, and until we, we lose now the real reason why, why the space launch system or why Orion was originally mandated. Uh, it's been through so many go-to roles by different presidents so what we need is consistency but i think the real problem is with regard to the balance on national versus international is the fact that nasa is very very much a at the end of a political pendulum and i think that is the greatest danger and it would not take much for all of that international base in goodwill and practical work sharing to evaporate very quickly yes there is a danger of that at least the Europeans are involved with the supply ships, so they can't get rid of us just yet. <laughs> they need us. <laughs> well, what about the the Russians and and the Chinese? How do they fit into this uh, great American plan to go back to the moon, or do they? Well, I think the we have seen with the Russians an, an incredible contribution to the International Space Station. Really, very very. Uh, heartily punched way above their weight, really. That weight being a very diminished economic capacity for supporting government-led space operations. They've tried to wean off this and that to various quasi-commercial operations insofar as anything can be commercial in, 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 in Russia. Um, and uh, the problem is really that, that this country has very limited resources. The population of Russia is little more than twice that of the UK, and, and we seem to forget that the economy is much less than that of the UK. And yet they're spending four times, what five times what we are on space. So it's a considerable impact on the disposable assets of the national economy. And they're falling behind. And when they lose the money from these $100 million seats for Soyuz, when the commercial contractors get their act together, 
and launch US astronauts from American soil, then I think there's going to be a further down step. And, and the hardware and the proposed programs are simply not coming through with regard to cut metal and, uh, op- and operational capabilities. So we could see the end, then, of, a, of the, the Russian human space program. I don't think it will be the end of it. I think there will be a pressing and urgent need for the Russians to go do deals elsewhere, and that may very well be China, because they're certainly cozying up to each other. And China has already taken a considerable amount of work assistance from Russia with regard to Shenzhou and the whole development of its space station programme. So we could see what China and Russia working together in space, and then the the US and, and, and Europe kind of sitting in between at some point. I feel that's the way it should go, and if I sound fearful rather than feel it should be the way it should go. The fearful aspect that I have in this is that I don't believe in a bipolar space, international space fraternity. I think we need to we need to settle our differences with Russia, we need to have them come on board, and we need to be much nicer to the Chinese space programme. We may have very significant seismic differences in the way the two economies and the way the societal structures of the countries are run, but I think space, just as the International Space Station has brought us all together across ideological divides, so too the gathering of world space communities can do better for the world than we're doing just with the International Space Station. David Baker, thank you very much indeed. And if you want to hear a an in-depth, even longer interview with David, he will be featuring as the first guest on a new podcast series by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering called Create the future, which I will be presenting at least the first couple of episodes as well. And I'm also going to put in a plug for Radio BBC Radio 4 this month, my programme Moonbase 2029. Anything you'd like to plug, David? Another, you must have another book. <laughs> oh, they're always there to plug, yes. <laughs> okay, David, yeah, thank you. Just look for whatever. <laughs> yes, just put David Baker, space. you'll find you'll it. Find you'll find it, Moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're really good. Uh, that's our July edition of Space Boffins. We're off to the Blue Dot Festival. Um, one of us will be talking there on Wally Funk and the other on Space Dogs. <laughs> no prizes <laughs> guessing <laughs> which one. Right. Yeah. Um, do say hello if you're there. Do buy us a drink. We'd love a drink. Um, oh, we'll, yes, have, we'll have more Apollo throughout the uh, next few months. And uh, thanks very much for listening. And thank you to the British Interplanetary Society yet again for hosting Space Boffins. <laughs>